If your Bible's with you, I ask you to turn the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, to the 11th chapter. While you're finding your place there, I, just, I want to know, you all to know how much I love you. And I thought, well, how can I show my love for them this morning? I thought, well, it's so cold and so rainy outside. I know what I'll do, Lord. I'll preach a little longer and keep them in here where it's nice and warm and dry. So that's what I'm going to do, just so you know. Isn't that loving of me? Yeah, all right. Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is from the Washington Post uh, on Friday. In a corner of Washington National Cathedral, several hundred Muslim worshipers and other invited guests gathered Friday afternoon for a first ever recitation of weekly Muslim prayers at the iconic Christian sanctuary, and to hear leaders of both faiths call for religious unity in the face of extremist violence and hate. The very Reverend Gary Hall, dean of the cathedral, marveled at the sound of the Arabic prayers, which he called a beautiful sacred language and a beautiful sacred space. Rashid Maknoum, a a retired engineer from Potomac, said it should be a lesson for Muslims everywhere that we and Christians are all one. The sermon was delivered by Ibrahim Rasul, a Muslim scholar who is South South Africa's ambassador to the United States. He said, mischief is threatening the world. The challenge for us today is to reconstitute, reconstitute a middle ground of good people whose very existence threatens extremism. Now, given the intent and the purpose of that gathering to speak out against Muslim extremism and violence and hatred and terrorism, the natural inclination of my heart is to say nothing against it. Otherwise, I feel like I become part of of the problem. Perhaps it's better to remain silent and let it go. Allow prayers offered to Muhammad be uh, recited in a Christian church. Promote peace. Stop the violence. That's what we should do. Should we remain silent? Is compromise and tolerance the way to peace? Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of of the living God. Beginning in verse 1, love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. His majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, the signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole country. What he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots. How he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you. And how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, sons of Aliab, the Reubenite. When the earth opened its mouth, right in the middle of all Israel. And swallowed them up with their households, their tents and every living thing that belonged to them. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord 
has done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again we ask that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word. As we come to this passage again for a, a third week, Lord, give us fresh eyes and ears to see the, the, the multitude of your truth that's contained within these verses. And Father, by the power of your spirit, I pray that you would be transforming us ever uh, increasingly more and more into the likeness of Christ so that we look more and more like the people that you've called us to be because we do the things you've called us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. We return again this week to the, the dramatic and disturbing event at which we began looking last week. Three men, one not listed here. The fuller account is in Numbers chapter 16. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, along with 200 and other 50 prominent men that they recruited to their cause, they rose up in rebellion and revolt against Moses. But Moses exposed their act for what it truly was. It really wasn't a, 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 a revolt against him at all. It was really a rebellion against God because God miraculously called Moses at the burning bush. God commissioned Moses to lead his people out of the slavery of Egypt. God used Moses to bring about the ten plagues on the nation of Israel. It was when the the staff of Moses was raised and when, when Moses raised his hand across the waters of the Red Sea, that's when they divided so that God's people could pass through them on dry land. It was Moses that God called to Mount Sinai. It was Moses who watched the finger of God, the finger of the living God, write the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. We could go on and on demonstrating the point that God, who at this point in human history has chosen to remain the unseen God, he works through Moses, his human representative, to to get out his will and to, to demonstrate his power to his chosen people. Moses is the God-appointed leader of God's chosen people. So, to rebel against Moses is actually to rebel against God and God's ways. And so we saw last week, if you were here, that God is not going to allow the, the sinful pride and the arrogance and the grasping of these three men for prominence and position. He's not going to allow them to destroy his plan, nor is he going to allow them to destroy the identity that God has for his people. So clearly, in this passage, God did not compromise with these men. God did not tolerate their pride or their sinful agenda. Instead, in a way that was not soon to be forgotten, God opened the earth and it swallowed the three men and all that belonged to them, and then fire came from heaven and consumed the 250 other men. See, this is how much God wanted his people to know. That his community of people must live in the way that God has ordained for them to live. Or his power would come against those who would pervert his will and prevent this brand new fledgling nation from being all that God had called them to be. God is not going to tolerate this sin among his people. So before it had an opportunity to to spread and infect and pock mark the entire community, God eliminated it. Now we think this is harsh. Where's the love of God in this act? Where's the compassion of God? Well, what lesser punishment, what lesser punishment could God have done? In April 2014, 
the Bureau of Justice Statistics released a report. Recidivism of prisoners released in 30 states from 2005 until 2010. And these are some highlights from that report. Among those prisoners released, about two-thirds, 67% of them, were arrested for a new crime within three years, and over three-fourths of them, three and four, were arrested within five years. More than a third of them were arrested within six months after their release, and over half of them were arrested by the end of the first year. Now, we don't have time to talk about why these statistics are true. There's a myriad of, of reasons. Lots of factors play into that. But the point is that they are true facts. I think it's safe to conclude that people are not easily deterred from their sinful behavior. People are not easily deterred from their sinful behavior. You and I, you know it's true. We're not easily deterred from the sinful behavior that we enjoy. So what kind of discipline might have worked better for these rebels? How many chances should God have given them? You know, in some of our lifetimes, we have watched what I call quote-unquote rebels. You know, many of them in mainline denominations. We've watched them suffer defeat after defeat in their attempts to devalue and inauthenticate the Word of God, to rob the Word of God from its divine inspiration and its inerrancy, because once that's done, once the Word of God is robbed of its divinity and of its, uh, and of its inerrancy, then you're free to do whatever you see fit in your own eyes. Without Scripture as your authority, you're free to make any decision you want about social issues, about the sanctity of life, about marriage. So people with that agenda are tenacious in accomplishing their goal. Defeat doesn't discourage them. It never does. It only causes them to work harder. And so these quote-unquote rebels may come. The first time for voting, 90% of the people are against them. No, you rebels. We, we love the word of God. 10% are for them. That's okay. They go back and they work harder. The next time they bring it to a vote, guess what happens? Well, now it's 80% to 20%. Work harder, even still. Recruit more until it's 70, 30, 60, 40. And then the day comes. And the vote comes when it's 49 to 51. They've won the majority. And so now, the church is proclaimed with denominational authority and encouragement that Scripture is not the inspired and errant Word of God. Now churches proclaim with denominational authority and encouragement that there is more than one way to God. And now churches can proclaim with denominational authority and encouragement that Jesus was not born of a, a virgin, that Jesus did not physically raise again from the dead. Now churches proclaim... With denominational authority and encouragement, you just decide what you want about social issues, social concerns. You know, wh- wh- whatever you want is fine. That's the reality. When sin is not disciplined. That is the reality. When sin is not disciplined. How many times would Korah and Dathan and Abiram kept coming back if God just let it go? If God just tolerated their sin and their rebellion, would they have staged a coup attempt every year? You know, with the 250 have turned into 500, and the 500 to 1,000, the 1,000 to 10,000, the 10,000 to 100,000? How might God have gotten the point across better that there must be purity in His community? See, until 
we are honest about the human heart, all of us here. So we're honest about the human heart and have a biblical perspective of the human heart. Discipline like this is always going to seem shocking to us. For everyone who believes that human beings are basically good at heart, we will stand in judgment of God. God, how could you do such a thing as this to good people like this? And we put ourselves above God. as more loving and more compassionate. What did scripture say? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else. The heart, the thing that all of us have, more deceitful than all else, scripture says, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? How can something that is desperately sick produce something good? If I were desperately sick with a cold right now, and I said to you, oh, excuse me, I've got to, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to have to sneeze. And one of you said, wait, 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 Craig, don't sneeze yet. I'm feeling terrible. Wait till I come up here until you can sneeze on me and then I'll feel better. Would anybody have that expectation? No. If you're sick, you're not going to get better from another sick person. Health and goodness is not going to come from a sick heart. And that is the whole part, the whole point of this story. We are created good. God made man in his image and he said it is good, but sin ruined that. And so the grand theme of this book right here, the grand theme of this book is God's plan for heart replacement. That's what it is. God's plan for heart replacement. By faith, God replaces the bad heart, what scripture calls a heart of stone, with a new heart, a good heart. What scripture calls a heart of flesh. And that's why God works to preserve the purity of his community of faith. So that the message of the heart transplant is proclaimed from their lips, our lips, and from the way they live their lives. So that people can see the reality of the living God. And so the vehicle of faith, the community of faith, has got to be preserved. And that's why this act of swallowing up these men is an act of love. So that faith doesn't go down in the grave with this generation. But instead, so that faith can go on. So that hope can go on. Hope of a new heart and an abundant life and communion with the one and only true and living God of the universe can be passed from one generation to another. That's the goal. And so God uses the people that He has purified. And the people that He calls to live pure lives. To get that message across. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. For I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy. For I am holy. The Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I am the Lord. Your God am holy. Leviticus 27, consecrate yourselves before the Lord and be holy for I, the Lord, your, uh, your God am holy. First Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy. How many times does God have to say it to us? Be holy because I am holy. So we see God at work in this passage 
preserving the holiness among his people. We see God rooting out the sin that will permit prevent his community from experiencing his living reality or pervert the truth of who he is. And so he doesn't tolerate that sin. You know, we can trace this truth through Scripture. I'll give you three examples of it. The first city that the people of Israel are going to encounter when they move off of these plains of Moab, they cross the Jordan River, the first city they're going to encounter is Jericho. And you know the story of Jericho, right? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And the... Exactly. (laughs) Miraculous, wasn't it? At the shout of the people of God, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But before God allowed that to happen, he had given them some very specific directions about Jericho. He said, Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into his treasury. So the people shout, the walls came tumbling down, and Joshua becomes famous throughout the land. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But, but, the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan took some of them. Now it's interesting that one man, Achan, stole. He's the one who sinned, but God's word says that the Israelites acted unfaithfully because God sees them as a corporate community. Well, what were the results? The next city they come to is Ai. Joshua sends spies out. Go look at uh, Ai. The spies go out, they look at Ai, and they come back to Joshua and say, Joshua, look, no need to send everybody up, let the people rest. Ai, no problem. There are just a few men there. And so Joshua says, fine. And he only sends 3,000 men to, to fight this battle at Ai. So they get there. And they go to fight. And the people of Israel were completely routed. Completely routed. So Joshua tore his clothes and he fell down on the ground and he prayed, Sovereign Lord, why did you bring us across the Jordan River to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites and to destroy us? The Lord answered Joshua. He said, Israel has sinned and they have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. That's why Israel cannot stand against their enemies. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. And so God tells Joshua to tell the people, that which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. I don't know what Achan thought about God before this point in his life. But now he knows that God knows what he thought nobody else knew. But Achan doesn't take God seriously or his commitment to the purity of of his people. So Achan doesn't confess. He doesn't confess his sin, even though his entire community, the entire nation of Israel has been impacted by his sin. So he continues to hide. And why wouldn't he hide? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Literally, it's only a one in a more than million chance 
that he'll ever be discovered. One among millions. Who will ever know that he did it? So he doesn't confess. But the Lord has a plan to root out the sin. So he says to Joshua, bring the 12 tribes before me, tribe by tribe. I'll select the tribe that's guilty. So Achan says, hey, I still have a one in 12 chance. I'm never going to be discovered. So Joshua brings the tribes forward, and it, it's Achan's tribe is chosen. Now God says, bring the clans of the tribes together. Achan says, well, you know, there are a lot of clans in my tribe. Maybe I still won't be discovered, so he doesn't confess. God picks Achan's clan. Then God says, now bring the families of the clan. Well, there are a lot of families in my clan. I'm sure maybe, golly, I'm getting close, but maybe it'll be okay. And so God chooses his clan and his family. And then God says this, bring before me every man of the family. Now Achan must be sweating because <laughs> there aren't that many more men. There are not many more people that can do it. And so finally, as they're brought forward man by man, God says, Achan, you are the one. Guess what Achan does then? Well, then he confesses. <laughs> yeah, Lord, you're right. I have sinned. I have sinned. And he had stolen some beautiful things and buried them in, in, in the ground in his tent. And so all of Israel stoned Achan and his family. Because see, God wants purity among his people. So he must be uncompromising in his demand for obedience. It's the only way to experience his reality and his fullness. So the entire community suffered because of Achan's sin. That's really a great and, and loving lesson. And it actually highlights what's so important to us. In 2014, the individual, the me generation, that's so compelling to us. The individual is important. But so is the whole community. So the community must be made pure. But the community is made up of individuals. And so for their own experience with God and for the sake of the community, God calls them to purity. Let's fast forward to the story of Jonah. I don't have a song for Jonah. That's okay. Jonah is the prophet and he thinks it's possible. He really thinks it's possible to run away from God. That's what he believes. That God can be escaped. And so Jonah gets on, on board of a ship that's going in the very opposite direction of where God called him to go. He thinks he can flee from God. Well, God sent a great wind and such a violent storm came upon uh, the waters that the, the boat threatened to break up. And so the sailors said to each other, they, they, they cried out to their gods and they said, come, let's cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And the lot fell on Jonah and the sea got rougher and rougher. And so they said to Jonah, what should we do? What should we do to you to make this uh, storm in the sea calm down? And Jonah said, well, pick me up and throw me overboard and the sea will become calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. But instead, the men on the boat are kind of like us. Oh, my goodness, that's too harsh. So, so you know what they do? They start rowing like this. They're trying to row back to land. No, we're not going to throw you overboard. We're going to row back to save you. And the harder they rowed, the greater the storm became. Until finally, they had to throw him overboard. And you know the story, they throw him overboard and immediately the storm calms down. Jonah's sin infected the whole ship. Fast forward, New Testament. The very earliest days of Jesus' church. We meet a man and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, with the full knowledge of his wife, sold a piece of property that they had. And he brought the money and he put it at the feet of the, of the apostles. I'm going to give this to the church. The only problem is that 
that Ananias pretended that the money he was giving, that the amount he was giving was the entire amount. Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some of the money you received? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Yeah. Why then have you, you have not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down dead at Peter's feet. And scripture says, great fear seized the church and all who heard about it. Three hours later, his wife comes in, tells the same story, tells the same lie. She falls down dead at the feet of Peter. And once again, great fear seized all the people. Because you see, just as God was not going to compromise with Korah and Abiram and Dathan, who were bringing this new nation uh, of Israel into sin, so God was not going to compromise with Ananias and Sapphira in the early days of this brand new fledgling church. God wanted to protect the church so it would grow strong. Strong in proclaiming the gospel. Strong in living out the gospel. Then we can move to the second chapter of Second Peter. And the apostle, the great apostle, writes some very harsh words there. He talks about false teachers in the church. I don't have time to describe it for you. Only to say that Peter knew that these people would and always would continue to exist in the church. That they would bring in destructive heresies, even denying Jesus, he says. That the way of truth will be blasphemed. Peter says that they will be reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. He says that they entice unsteady souls. Now we think of someone with this motivation and this heart of blackness as, well, we, we can identify them easily. What an awful, terrible person they must be. Well, not so. Beautiful people. Magnetic people. Charming people. Well-spoken people could be the ones. A minister. The denomination we just talked about. With now given authority to preach these things, he might be the most popular minister in town. He might glad hand everybody, high five everybody. If you meet him in the grocery store, man, he is the nicest guy I've ever met in my life. And he's got all these letters in front of his name. He's got all these letters behind his name, so he must be well-educated. He knows what he's doing. He can be trusted. I mean, goodness, he's progressive in his thinking. Look at how tolerant and look at how open he is. This is where we should all be in the 21st century. Hey, let's follow that man. But here's God's view of these people. Second Peter two seventeen. These people are springs without water. And mists driven by a storm. Nothing. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For that charming, magnetic, beautiful person. Yeah. For they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping. And those from error. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Paul. Last one. The last time he's with the elders at Ephesus, before he leaves them, he says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now that's the reality. So what does Paul advise? Tolerate them? No. He says, so be on your guard. Be careful. Pay careful attention. So here you have Peter and Paul, apostolic powerhouses, both acknowledging the sin that can exist in the church and that must be rooted out. We've got to be diligent. We have to be diligent. Diligent to protect our identity. Who are we? We are sons and daughters of the one and only true and living God. He is our Father. We are adopted by Him because we have not tolerated sin in our lives. Because we have called sin what it is. We've called it sin. And we have repented. And we have turned our backs on it. And we have turned in faith to Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ as the only one. Who can successfully do that heart transplant. To take out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Why should we tolerate the claim that anyone else but Jesus can do that? Why should we? And what good will come of it? What peace will come to anyone who is trusting in anyone but Christ alone to be their Savior? The love of God hasn't changed for His people, nor has His desire for us to be holy. Ephesians 5 shows us the extent of the love. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Nobody else did this. Christ loved the church and gave his life for her to make her holy, holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And so sin and disobedience and Rebellion and pride and arrogance and lying. The list goes on. Those things disfigure us. And they blemish us. And they wrinkle us. And they keep us from being holy and blameless. They must not be tolerated in our lives. Look, if you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can tell you this. God loves you. He does. That is a fact. But he also loves the person sitting beside you. This side, this side, behind you, in front of you. If they are believers in Christ. And so your life as an individual impacts all of us. Let me give you just a little example. Just something here at Redeemer. In the choir, wonderful, really. They sing so beautifully. And so we say this to people in the choir. We say... Make good choices on Saturday so that you can be in your best voice on Sunday morning and so that you can be in the best spirit so you can lead God's people in worship. Now, yelling at a football game all day on Saturday, going to a bar on Saturday night with a loud band or or DJ yelling over that is not going to put you in the best voice Sunday morning. Other choices you make on Saturday. 
may not put you in the best spirit to worship on Sunday. And so in that way, the individual, the choice of the individual impacts all of us. Now people say, you know, our culture says, what business, what business is it of yours, what these people do in their own lives? It's none of your business. You are overreaching. What kind of cult are you leading to suggest such a thing? Well, I find it a thoroughly biblical view. As we read, we are being built together, stone by stone, each of us stones, in this spiritual house that God is building. We can fight against it, but it's biblical. And so again, as always, we're faced with the question, who or what is going to inform our lives and how we live? Is it going to be God's word or what our culture says? Don't let them talk to you that way. No. What's the answer? As we saw last week, our lives were not our own. They were purchased by Christ. We belong to Him. We belong to one another. And so my guess is there is a little aching in all of us this morning. A little hiding going on. Well, who will ever know? Who will know but me? You know what? You're right and you're wrong. You may be the only one that knows, but your sin that's making you who you are, that impacts every one of us. And so we need to repent. Stop hiding. There are Jonah's among us. Fleeing. You know, thinking that we can escape God. Psalm 139 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths, you're there. If I go to the far side of the sea, even there you are. And your hand will guide me. So that fleeing process that you're in the middle of, I've got to flee God. i got to get away from him. i got to get away from his hand. i got to get away from him. That fleeing process is going to impact all of us. Don't run from the Lord. Run to him. He is gracious. Jesus is there. And the old hymn is true. He will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Maybe there's an Ananias and Sapphira among us. Lying to yourself about who you are, lying to God, lying to others. David says in Psalm 51, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. So how do we find that truth? How do you and I find that place of honesty in our inmost being? Through Jesus. Scripture tells us Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth and the life. And so he'll guide us to, to this place of truth. And with him as your guide, with him as my guide, it will be okay. It'll be okay. Even if it's hard or hurtful or painful. So for the sake of our own lives, your life as an individual and mine, and for the sake of the body as a whole, let's be people of truth, individually and corporately, people of purity. Let's not tolerate sin or make any compromise with it. Let's trust that God knows the way to peace and let's follow him there. Let's pray.
Father, we, we do thank you that you are the God of, of all grace, of all love, of all compassion. That is who you are. You are the definition of those terms, Lord. So if ever we think we are more loving than you are, if ever we think we are more compassionate than you are, if ever we think we're more gracious than you are because of the way we treat people so much better than you do, I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us for that sinful, sinful thought. You are those things in perfection. And if we want to be those things ourselves in our own lives, we have to follow you there. We're not going to find them on our own or from our own thoughts or from our own attitudes or or what we think is the right way. No, you tell us the right way because you, Lord Jesus, are the truth. And so what you say is true. And so I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each of our hearts this morning. So often we view ourselves as unimportant. So easy to think of ourselves as unimportant to the whole. Our behavior doesn't matter. Our presence doesn't matter. We just don't matter. Lord, that's not true. You love each of us individually. But you've called us to be part of this greater family, this greater community, this greater body. Believers in Christ. So, Father, I pray that we would make right choices through the power of your Spirit as individuals. That we would keep in right relationship with you, not only for ourselves, but the, for the sake of all these people seated around us right now that we love. For they're worth it, and for their good, and for their hope, and for their life, and for their faith. May we commit ourselves to be people of honesty and purity before you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.